This is Sportsnet Today with Logan Gordon on your official home of the Flames. Sportsnet 960 The Fan. We're going to kick hour two of Sportsnet Today off with a little bit of CFL conversation. The offseason still with many developments awaiting conclusion, but we've had some pretty significant news over the last week or so. We've talked a lot about the situation with Calgary, somewhat of the changing of the guard with John Huffnagel and Dave Dickinson taking different positions in the Calgary Stampeders organization. We have some big changes in Saskatchewan when it comes to their coaching staff. Some questions to ask about the Winnipeg Blue Bombers as well. So I thought it was the perfect time uh, to reach out to our pal uh, from Three Down Nation. He is a CFL insider and reporter for them. You can catch all of his work at threedownnation.com. Uh, it's our pal John Hodge joining us down the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline this afternoon. John, thanks for doing this as always, man. How are you? Doing great. How about yourself? I'm doing really good, man. Thanks uh, for the time, as always. You're always super kind to us here in Calgary, and really appreciate it. Uh, wanted to start with the the news with you know here locally that we've been talking about for most of the week, and that was uh, the announcement of the Calgary Stampeders that John Huffnagel was going to relieve himself of the general manager duties and hand it over to Dave Dickinson. I, I guess just your initial reaction when you saw the news, uh, John and Dave said that. Uh, you know, hey, this was something that they've been working on for almost a year now, so it wasn't a surprise to anybody in the Stampeders organization. Yeah, I guess my initial reaction was it, it's about time, right? It feels like time. Uh, one could argue that this move maybe should have been made a little bit sooner, and I, I say that with the utmost respect for Mr. Hoffnagel and everything he's accomplished in this league. I mean, he won 175 games as a GM there over 14 seasons, uh, he won three great cups. He's in the hall of fame for a good reason. Um, that being said, I don't think you can deny that the stamps have fallen off a little bit in, in recent years. If you go back to, you know, really, really starting in say 2013 when John Cornish was the league's MOP and going through say 2018, the, the most recent time the Sam Peters won the gray cup, you know, they they were not just the best team in the CFL, but they were the flagship franchise of this league and a significant step above anybody else. One or two tiers fully above the league's other eight teams. And that simply can't be said anymore. Are the Stampeders still a good team? Absolutely. But, you know, on and off the field, they've been surpassed by the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. I think you could argue they've been surpassed by the BC Lions, especially with Nathan Rourke winning the West semifinal against the Calgary Stampeders this year. Um, and, and even the Toronto Argonauts, who, of course, are, are reigning Grey Cup champs. So, you know, the Stamps have gone from the unquestioned flagship team in the league to, you know, a team that's good. And as much as good is good enough in a lot of places, um, you know, I, I'm not surprised that the Stamps have opted for a change, especially given Mr. Huffnagel's age. I don't know if this is a question you'll have an answer for, but I'm curious if you might. And that's something that me and, and Matt Rose, uh, our stamps reporter here in Calgary, asked. And that was, is there any benefit from a financial side of things for the Stampeders to add uh, Dave Dickinson to the GM title when it comes to the cap on how much they can spend on coaches? 
So the operations cap applies to anybody in football operations, personnel folks, scouts, coaches, um, uh, video personnel. Uh, it does not include training staff out of the interest of player safety, but it also does not include presidents, which, by the way, is an awful convenient thing for presidents around the league to do. <laughs> we're we're going to leave our own salaries not capped, but everyone underneath us, we're going to cap you uh, j- just because, you know, we wouldn't want spending to get out of hand. We're still, again, we're, we're going to take the checks and the raises and all that stuff, but everyone else, you can stay, uh, you can stay capped because, of course, we have to be prudent. Um, but I've always been interested. I don't know if Mr. Huffnagel's salary counted against the cap because, of course, he served as the president and the GM, mm-hmm. um, you know, carrying a role that is capped and a role that's not capped. I don't know how you manage that. Do you, does 50% of his earnings go against the cap? Well, I, I don't know. Um, with, with Dickinson being the head coach and the GM, I think this is a way to get him some extra money. And this is a trend that we've seen for a while now. Um, of course, Chris Jones is the head coach and GM in Edmonton. Uh, Rick Campbell is the head coach and co-general manager in BC. Orlando Steinauer is the president of football operations um, and the, uh, the, the head coach in Hamilton. So you know, when you combine these titles, you can pay guys more money, of course, because you're not paying two people for the role. You're paying one and, and you know these people oftentimes aren't necessarily doing all of the jobs that a general manager would would typically do, but they're able to surround themselves by good people who who can then you know delegate or or have some of those tasks delegated to them. So I think this is a good way for Calgary to get some extra money to Dickinson, save a little bit of extra money overall, and then also you know prevent other teams from poaching whether it's Dickinson himself or some of those people underneath him who are looking for a little bit more money or looking for some extra uh, uh, opportunities professionally to, to take on more responsibility. One piece of news that uh, culminated across the league this week was, of course, the release of the 2023 CFL schedule. Uh, CFL.ca you know, has lots of positive things to say about the schedule, of course, that it's one of the most consistent the league has ever produced. There's 21 Saturday games that kick off at 7 p.m. Eastern and 11 Sunday summer games that all kick off at 7 p.m. Eastern as well. Fewer instances of teams having multiple games against the same opponent in a short period of time and half as many back-to-back games in this year's schedule. Uh, there's been plenty of talk about it, of course, here in Calgary. The talk was that if you know Hamilton does sign Bo Levi Mitchell, he won't come to Calgary next season, and what a missed opportunity that might be for the league. But did anything stick out to you when the 2023 schedule was released, John? The, the let, Let's talk about that Hamilton-Calgary issue because this is something that the league has messed up now several times. In 2021, Paul Apolise and the Ottawa Red Blacks not only didn't uh, uh, visit Winnipeg, I don't think those two teams even played. And granted, it was a shortened season. It was coming out of the pandemic. So you, you, you kind of give the league the benefit of the doubt. But obviously, fans in Winnipeg wanted to see Paul Apolise, the, the former offensive coordinator, won the Great Cup with Winnipeg in 2019, come back to town. Didn't happen. Last year, Andrew Harris signs in Toronto. Well, the Argonauts did not come to Winnipeg. So, you know, the... the the biggest storyline potentially for certainly Winnipeg all season, one of the biggest storylines in the CFL that season, you know, would have been Andrew Harris returning to Winnipeg. Never happened. And now going into 2022, you've got possibly, and it's not locked in yet. Obviously, Bolivar Mitchell is still a pending free agent, but 
all the signs point to him signing a long-term deal in Hamilton to become the face of that franchise. And what a missed opportunity to have him not come into the fan stadium. And this is something that for, for many, many, many years was a non-issue because the way the league scheduled its games is every single team visited every other team, right? If you're, if you're one team, 16 of your 18 contests would just be a home and away against every other team, and you'd have two bonus games. What the league has done over the last couple of years is tried to make the, the, the seasons or the schedules a little bit more divisionally focused. So you don't play every other team in the, every, in, in, in the other division uh, at both home and away. And what you end up doing is running the risk of this happening where you miss on capitalizing on a potentially huge storyline. I mean, look at the NFL, right? When Deshaun Watson came back from his suspension, who was the first team they played? Yeah, Houston, Houston Texans, yeah. right? And, and the NFL is not stupid. They did that for a reason. They planned that. They executed that. And they got the buzz. They got the hype. Obviously, it's a different circumstance between Watson and, and the Browns and the Texans as opposed to Mitchell and the Ticats and the Stamps. But why not capitalize on that same opportunity? I don't understand it. This was a missed opportunity for the league. No question. Yeah, it's one of those strange ones where, don't get me wrong, there would be hype regardless of Mitchell playing his old team, but it just feels like a lot of missed opportunity for them to to have a return to McMahon where he was so successful for so many years. Uh, a lot of talk about this schedule too, John, trying to appeal uh, back to a U.S. TV deal for the CFL, but uh, as I've kind of learned over the last little while and reading different people like yourself on Twitter and stuff, it. it it is and isn't a big thing for the CFL. The The viewership is almost more important to them than, say, the bottom line would be from any sort of U.S. TV deal. Is that right? Well, historically, from, from what I've been led to believe, the, the deal that, that the CFL has with ESPN to stream its games uh, or broadcast its games, simulcast their games, is worth approximately a hundred dollars to $200,000 American. So at the end of the day, you know, that, that really does little to nothing to affect the CFL's bottom line. What it does do, however, is, is what you're describing there, which is provide the opportunity for Americans to watch this game, right, and to watch this league. And I think that the last several years, the CFL of essentially giving away its American rights for, for broadcasting was to gain that exposure and gain that opportunity to just, you know, give give Americans, right, just, just easy access to the game. Okay, it's on ESPN2 or whatever else. Um, give them that opportunity. Now that they feel like they have a, a small share of the market, I think now the CFL's goal is to, is to really garner a significant amount of money. And one of the ways to do that is to regulate its schedule. And this is a complaint. I will say I've heard oftentimes from casual CFL fans, which is, Wait, when the heck are the games again? Because we know the NFL, you could take it to the bank, right? We already know in 2023, there's no 2023 NFL schedule out yet, but we know darn well when the games are going to be, right? We're going to have Thursday and Sunday nights, we're going to have Monday nights, and you're going to have your main kickoff at 1 p.m. Eastern on Sunday, followed by 4.30 uh, p.m. Eastern. Occasionally, there's going to be you know games overseas that are going to be happening in the morning or whatever else, but... You know, by and large, you can set your watch to the NFL schedule. You know when the games are going to be. The CFL has not had that luxury, obviously, for many years. You know, there's probably a game on Friday night. Other than that, you got to do your research. And some fans, you know, especially, again, the casual fans are willing to do that research. They just want to turn on the TV and know 
when the games will be on. So I think regulating, you know, some of those start times is a good thing. And, and in the long run, I think that the U.S. market is a huge, um, you know, potential thing that the CFL could could try to use to capture some extra money because I think they've kind of topped out uh, what they can earn domestically for their television rights. And I don't think that despite Mr. Ambrosi's, you know, grand wishes of, you know, European and, and Mexican TV deals, I don't think that those things are ever going to materialize in a meaningful way. I think the U.S. is the way to go. And uh, the good news is you don't need, you know, 10% of the NFL's revenue uh, uh, for, for a broadcasting deal. You, you don't need, you know, even 2% of what their broadcasting deal is worth. If you can just get 1% or even a fraction of a percent, that's a meaningful amount of money for the CFL and, w- and would certainly help grow the league's revenues in a substantial way. Training with John Hodge from Three Down Nation here on Sportsnet today, uh, covering a couple of CFL storylines uh, as we're a couple weeks into the offseason now. And uh, one of the, the topics I wanted to get to with you is, is one that would usually follow, I would say, a discussion maybe about a head coach hiring, but maybe not an offensive coordinator, but this is how things roll in Saskatchewan, uh, they've announced that Kelly Jeffrey is going to be the club's OC this year. He joined the Rough Riders last season and was their running backs coach. And uh, of course, plenty of Riders fans have, you know, let it be known that they weren't happy with Jason Moss last year and were looking for change. Uh, I, I think the reaction's been mixed about this, but uh, as usual, when things happen in Saskatchewan, John, it's a pretty big deal, and the Riders are hoping that this hire will help their offense get back on track next season. Absolutely. And, and let's, let's be honest, Jason Moss did not have a lot of success last year in Saskatchewan. I think he's done a great job running CFL offenses in the past. Last year did not work. Um, something that I was scratching my head about and talking to people around the league, they've scratched their heads about is why the heck they didn't run the ball, right? They, they had a great dual threat out of the backfield and Jamal Morrow, a guy who was an excellent receiver out of the backfield at Washington state back in college and, and, and a guy who I think could be a, a serious candidate to lead the league in, in yards from scrimmage. And, you know, he, he was getting, you know, eight, 12 touches a game and you kind of scratch your head going, okay, you've got a young offensive line that's struggling to protect the quarterback. You've got Cody Fajardo on a knee brace who's, who's struggling to move around as, as a guy who's usually mobile. Why aren't you running the football? Like that, that, that would make so much more sense than dropping your quarterback back to pass 30, 35 times a game. But Anyway, I mean, Kelly Jeffrey is the running backs coach or was the running backs coach last season. And he's one of the reasons why Jamal Morrow, who, by the way, endorsed Kelly Jeffrey for the role of OC, was so successful in his first year as uh, as the guy in the backfield in Ryderville. So Kelly Jeffrey does not have any professional experience as an OC, but he does have experience as an OC, as a quarterbacks coach. From the NCAA, he was a head coach at the U Sports level at Mount Allison. So I like a lot what I've heard from Kelly Jeffrey thus far. He's talked about, you know, bending the offense to wrap around a quarterback skill set and not try to take a quarterback and, and push them into, into a playbook or an offensive scheme that they don't fit, right? And I do think that's something that some coordinators fall into. It's a trap. I think, you know, they, they, they see a round hole or a, a round hole and they just – they spend a lot of time trying to push it through the square, the square hole, the, the square peg, you know, and it's, you know, and it's, it's an ego thing. Sometimes I think they think, no, my scheme is so darn good that uh, we, we have to run it no matter what. doesn't matter if the pieces don't fit. 
we have to run it because my scheme is so brilliant, so incredible. So I thought it was it was nice to hear Kelly Jeffrey uh, speak humbly, speak honestly, and say, hey, we're going to make our scheme fit to the pieces that we have, not the other way around. That was refreshing. I liked it. Some people wondered if a potential OC hire in Saskatchewan, John, would somehow correlate them to you know trying to sway Bo Levi Mitchell in some way, shape, or form to perhaps look at Saskatchewan as a more desirable destination for him. Should he not re-up with the Ticats this offseason? Do you think that fills the need? Do you think this was done with that in mind in any way, or was this just simply the best hire and the Riders made that decision based on that? Well, they did reportedly offer the job to other individuals. Um, I don't think Kelly Jeffrey was ever at the very top of their wish list because of the reason that you mentioned. If they went out and they were able to get uh, a Mark Mueller, right, who currently serves as the quarterback's coach in Calgary, if they were able to go get Pete Costanza, a guy who is the receiver's coach and pass game coordinator in Toronto but has many, many years of experience in Calgary as their receivers coach. Uh, I think he was there for, for almost 10 years overlapping with, with Bo. Then I think they would have had maybe a better case to go out and say, all right, we've, we've, we found a guy for you. at OC who's going to call the plays that you like, who's going to work with you, who's going to collaborate, who's, who, you know, we know you're going to instantly be comfortable with because you've got this history together. They now don't have that. To me, the hiring of Kelly Jeffrey is an admission by the riders that they're no longer a realistic candidate for Boldy by Mitchell in those sweepstakes. Um, they don't have, uh, at least at this point in time, anything that they can point to and say, look, we've upgraded our line here, or look, we've upgraded our receiving core there, or, oh, look, we've got someone in, in you know, the clubhouse now who we've got familiar with as a coach. Uh, to me, the only thing that the riders have right now that they could use to realistically woo Boldy by Mitchell is a big giant contract, which I think Hamilton will offer as well, um, or they've got just the Ryderville uh, aura, right? They've got mm-hmm. a great uh, a great fan base. And Bo has said on the record, look, I, I want to play in a place where football matters and people care about football. To me, that was his way of saying, I don't want to go to Toronto. Um, but Hamilton still fits that in my view, right? Anybody who's ever been to or even watched on TV, what Ticats fans will do and say mm-hmm. uh, to to visiting teams and, and visiting fans or whatever knows full well how much those fans in Steel Town love their Ticats. So to me, I, I think this this move means that the Riders, you know, with, with all you know, and, and you know, crazy things have happened in the CFL. Maybe there is still a chance Bo comes to Ryderville, but to me, this is them saying, okay, we've got Kelly Jeffrey. Now let's figure out who the quarterback is because there's a very good chance it will not be bullied by Mitchell. And last topic I wanted to hit on you with you today, John, was um, as you wrote at Three Down Nation, this situation in Winnipeg is bizarre. And I thought that was the best word you could have used to describe it, that they would be so noncommittal to their GM, uh, Kyle Walters, when talking about his future with the with the team and and why Wade Miller was the way he was when talking about that have you you wrote about it you've you've talked about it can you sort of break it down for everyone listening as to why exactly this isn't as cut and dry as it might seem for a team that's been to three straight gray cups well there's there's some speculation that I'd have to do to fill in the gaps but to me the only way that this story makes sense 
is is that Wade Miller, uh, the president CEO of the Bombers, has simply decided that Kyle Walters as the GM is not an important piece to them continuing to win. And the reason I say that is in 2016 and 2019, Kyle Walters, the GM, Mike O'Shea, the head coach, had their extensions announced at the same time. Um, this year, not only has that not been the case, Mike O'Shea signed his extension last week for, for three years, uh, but Kyle Walters has not even started negotiating a contract extension with Winnipeg. My understanding is he's not been offered an extension. He is under contract through 2023, but he is not under contract beyond that. Um, you know, Wade Miller is a lot of things. Uh, dumb is not one of them. Wade Miller is a very smart man. He knows exactly what makes his team tick and why his team has been two, three straight Grey Cups. And if if he felt as though Kyle Walters was a big part of that success, there's no question that Kyle Walters would have already signed an extension. Kyle Walters, by the way, was not even at the press conference. Uh, there were rumors circulating that he was on vacation down south. So, you know, if, if you're on vacation – when, you know, the guy who hired you, because or, or the guy you hired, let's remember Kyle Walters was the one who, back in December of 2013, went out and hired Mike O'Shea as his head coach. You know, while he's getting an extension, it, to me, it, it just does not smell right now. Why would the team move on from a three-time Grey Cup, you know, appearance GM, if you will? Um, I don't know. Obviously, there are things going on behind closed doors that we are not privy to, but to me, logically, there is no way that this situation would have played out the way that it did if if signing Kyle Walters to an extension was right there on the priority list along with Mike Gauthier and Wade Miller's books. And by the way, the other thing I'll say is we already talked about, you know, the head coach in Calgary, Dave Dickinson, becoming their general manager. You know, we've talked about coaches around the leagues, uh, around the league getting further titles uh, to either pay them more or to prevent them from leaving. We know that, for instance, last offseason, Edmonton wanted to interview Mike O'Shea for a potential dual role of head coach GM. Maybe this is an indication that a year from now, Mike O'Shea could be the GM of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, or if not the GM, some type of other title that will keep him in Winnipeg long-term, get an opportunity to pay him more, and have him maybe be the, the, the person with with, uh, with their hands on the controls rather than somebody else. John, always appreciate the time. Thanks so much for hopping on. I'm sure we'll chat with you down the line as we get uh, closer to uh, free agency beginning and we'll have more uh, CFL topics to dive into before we get to uh, next season for sure. If I don't talk to you in the next little bit, happy holidays, pal. We'll uh, chat with you in the new year, hey? Appreciate it. Anytime. Thanks. John Hodge. You can find him on Twitter at John D. Hodge, CFL insider and reporter for 3 Down Nation. I mean, of course, at 3 downnationcom with the latest around the CFL. Some big topics there. The Stampeders, what the Saskatchewan Rough Riders are doing at the offensive coordinator position, what that might mean for Bo Levi Mitchell if he's still someone that they want to pursue this offseason. And, of course, the strange situation with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers and not wanting to commit to their GM despite getting to three straight gray cups. Uh, John joined us down the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline. Uh, come on in and enjoy hockey and football game day specials at 6060 Memorial Drive Northeast. Pickup and delivery also available at Atlas Pizza 403-248-3344. We'll take a break, come back, wrap up hour two with our regular Thursday chat. Time to check in with Adnan Verk next here on Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Listening to Sportsnet Today with Logan Gordon on the home of the Flames, Sportsnet 960 The Fan. This works out really well. If 
we could just get one major record-breaking signing in MLB free agency a week until the next season starts. It'll be perfect. It literally lines up our Thursday chat with this next gentleman perfectly. Last week, we had the perfect timing to talk about Aaron Judge and the massive money he got to return to the New York Yankees. And this week, we get to talk about another guy who bet on himself and won big, and that would, of course, be Carlos Correa signing the massive 13-year deal with the San Francisco Giants. Welcome back to Sportsnet Today. It's Logan Gordon along with you, and very happy to go down the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline and welcome in our pal from MLB Network, NHL Network, and the Cinephile Podcast, my friend and yours, Adnan Verk. Verk, how are you, pal? I'm doing great, Logan. I completely agree with your theory. Let's space this thing out nice and smooth. Now, I don't want Swanson to get tired right uh, right away as far as finding a team because we're going into the holidays, take a little break. Let's wait till January. January's Hall of Fame. We'll get Swanson signed in January, WBC right around the corner, and we're good to go. I, I, I've been thrilled with just how busy the baseball offseason has been, and I'm genuinely surprised that Correa signed this early. I thought of all the guys. He'd be the one that would wait until February. He wouldn't care. Scott Boris and him don't mind playing the long game. But when someone offers you $350 million, you go, hey, why wait? Let's get this thing done. Yeah, and what an interesting story Correa is. Former first overall pick. Spends a year with the Twins. Similar to what Aaron Judge does in a sense of, you know, betting on himself, Adnan, after his time in Houston. And he didn't quite get the deal that he wanted before. And now he gets, you know, the richest deal ever for a former first overall pick and the fourth largest contract in baseball history and the most ever for a shortstop. 13 years is a massive commitment for the Giants, but, I mean, I I don't know what Carlos Correa doesn't bring to the table. Yeah, he's a great player. There's no question about it. I know there's some quibbles. He's never hit 30 home runs in a season. He's never driven in more than 100 RBI. Fine, I get it, but he's a really good player. He's offensively talented. We know he can hit home runs. We know he can hit for a good average. You know, he's clutch. We've seen that in the playoffs. You know, what time is it pointing at his hand and all the big home runs he's hit for the Astros when they were in the playoffs. His defense is exemplary. He's one of the best defensive shortstops in the game. And when you look at his numbers the last couple of years, he ranks fourth in slugging percentage. He's second in on-base percentage. And he's first in war, WRC+, plus, and defensive run save. So as far as shortstops are concerned, Correa brings it. He is the elite at his position. And I would have thought initially he'd be getting, you know, 250, 260. But once Bogarts got 280, I said, okay, all bets are off. Now, Correa is going to be a $330 million man, and it was even more than that. It was 350. So credit to him and Scott Boris for reading the market right. As you said, a year ago, signs a three-year deal with the Twins with two offsets. He can opt it after year one, opt it after year two. Really smart way of doing it because, hey, if you get hurt, if something happens, no problem. You're guaranteed the money. If you have a lousy year, you're guaranteed the money. But if you play well, which he did, you opt out, boom, you're right back on the market. So really smart move by him and Scott Boris. And I think for the Giants, they offered Judge 9 for 360. He said, no, they had to get a superstar, Logan. They had to get a face. The Giants don't have a premier player face the franchise ever since Buster Posey retired. So this past season, they had the lowest attendance ever at Oracle Park. I know Oracle hasn't been around forever, but I mean, whatever, 15, 20 years it's been around this is the lowest attendance they've had. So they had to do something here. This was a 500 team after an electric 107 win season the year previous. Had to do something. Let's go get a star. Go get a face the franchise. Enter Correa. And away we go. Is this kind of another reminder about just how vital a shortstop is if you don't have one? Because it kind of feels 
like the offseason of the shortstop now. Bogarts gets that massive deal with the Padres. Trey Turner signs a $300 million deal with the Phillies, and now this deal for Carlos Correa. I mean, first of all, I understand you're not going to get a free agent class that includes this kind of talent very often, but it feels like shortstop's kind of becoming that premier position, especially when it comes to free agents, Adnan. 100% Logan. I mean, I was looking at, remember when Cabrera and Pujol signed those 10-year contracts and everyone said, that'll never happen again. They're not going to pay a 30-year-old a 10-year contract. But those guys were first basemen, and they were 30 years of age. So the only guy who's been getting paid like that is Judge, who's 30 turning 31, but he's a right fielder, and you feel like he's an anomaly in that he's only played six seasons. It wasn't like he's been playing since he was 20 years old like Fernando Tatis Jr. Judge was a late bloomer. And therefore, maybe he's got plenty more left in the tank than those other guys. But to your point, the guys getting the big contracts are the middle infielders and the shortstops. Correa is the one getting 13 years. You know, Trey Turner is getting the 11 years. Xander Bogarts is getting the 13 years because they, they know that those guys are critical up the middle. And especially with these rule changes, someone like Correa is critical where you can't shift all over the place. If he's very strong defensively, that's a godsend for you. Same thing for Trey Turner. Now, Bogarts, according to a lot of advanced metrics, isn't strong defensively. And yet, when I ask people who just follow the game, they say he's better defensively than he's given credit for. Like, he's fine. Um, but I think it goes to the fact that, yeah, you know, old school baseball mentality, strength up the middle, catcher, shortstop, second base, and center fielder. And in the past, those positions were really built upon defense. And whatever offense you could get was a bonus. But that's not the case anymore. But those three guys I mentioned, Bogarts, Turner, Correa, all of them can play well defensively, but also can rake, most importantly. So I think if you're going to commit a 13-year contract, it's to a player in their 20s who plays a premier position defensively in shortstop. That was the the big story of the week. Another one was a, a three-team trade that saw the A's trading catcher Sean Murphy to the Braves in a three-team deal that involved the Brewers. The A's wind up getting five pieces when it's all said and done. William Contreras winds up a Brewer, and the Braves wind up with Sean Murphy. I saw you breaking it down. Uh, with Kevin Millar there and, and talking about this move. And it's a big one for the, the Braves who continue to to add. And when you have such a good young pitching rotation like the Braves do, it feels like getting a guy like Sean Murphy is just sort of the perfect acquisition to really round that team out. Yeah, I'm glad you bring it up, Logan. I think it's a critical move. I'm completely with you. And you're right. It was me and Millar on intentional talk, and we got word five minutes before the show started. Sean Murphy's been traded, so we didn't know – all the particulars of the players would be, but Murphy's one of those guys who is so critical because he's a catcher who's excellent defensively and he can also hit. Uh, I don't know if everyone's a war fan, but there was only three catchers who had a war of five or higher. Those three catchers are JT Realmuto, Adley Rutschman, and Sean Murphy. He's 28 years of age. He's three years of club control, and now he's an Atlanta Brave, which is a perfect situation for him. Three years of the great team, he can really have his value get pumped up. Like he could be a $100 million catcher, no question. You know, five, six years, whatever it might be. Um, and for the Braves, it's a huge win because he's three years club control. So obviously he's going to get a raise in arbitration, but he's not going to get some massive contract. And again, he'll really help out with that pitching staff of Max Freed and Kyle Wright and Ian Anderson and Mike Soroka and, you know, all those different names that kind of come together. Charlie Morton as well, so... I think he's a really good defensive catcher. He'll fit in well with that rotation. But most importantly, he can hit. Now, what does that mean for Travis Darno? I'm sure he'll be DHing a little bit. Maybe that means his days are numbered. But Alex Anthopoulos, our fellow Canadian, is awfully smart at identifying a need and making things happen. And I think in this instance, he 
made a trip to Oakland a year ago, acquiring Matt Olson, who, again, was a young player, young star that the A's can't afford. Anthopoulos says, I'll give you a bunch of prospects. I'll take them off your hands. Same thing this year. Sean Murphy, a catcher of the A's, you're not going to be able to afford. I'll give you some prospects. I'll take it off your hands. Uh, they got three team, uh, a third team involved there with the Brewers and William Contreras, which is a good move for them. So I love it for uh, – I certainly love it for the Braves. The A's, it's hard, man. That fan base, they just – they just keep acquiring prospects. Hopefully these guys will be stars, and in five years they'll trade them again. But it, it, it's awfully tough to be a fan of that team. Great move, though, for the Braves. Yeah, it sure is. It feels, you know you know those prospects, you, you got to feel it with the A's. One of them's going to pan out, and he'll have two or three great seasons just in time for the A's to ship him off to a contender in some other city. That's just such a, a kick in the teeth for that team. Anytime they get somebody good and worth having, Adnan, it's boom, off to another place for another round of prospects. Yeah, they're smart enough, Billy Bean and company, to acquire players who are going to be stars. But unfortunately, they don't have the financial wherewithal to keep those guys there. So, like you said, a couple of those guys are going to be studs, and they can play for five years at the Oakland Green and Gold, and then eventually they'll be sent on their way. Uh, from a more local perspective here in Calgary, obviously the team that we cover the most here is the Blue Jays. They've made a couple of moves this offseason, which has quieted the fan base a bit. Kevin Kiermeyer comes in uh, as sort of the extra outfielder now for the Jays on a one-year deal. Uh, Kiermeyer has been uh, a nightmare fuel for Blue Jays fans as he's led many of those bad days in Tropicana Field for the Toronto Blue Jays over the years, but now switches sides. And then Chris Bassett, joins the rotation, and i got to be honest with you, Ed, and the only thing I knew about Chris Bassett uh, up until a couple weeks ago was A, that he pitched for the Mets, and B, that he was with the A's when he got struck in the face by that line drive, and that entirely lives in my nightmares and will ever prevent me from getting in front of a guy uh, and pitching a baseball to him because that was one of the scariest things I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, that's a good job by you. I totally forgot. That was the same Chris Bassett. Yes, right. it was. The scariest, freakiest injuries you've ever seen before. Um, I think it's a good signing for the Blue Jays, both of them. Kiermaier is a three-time Gold Glove Award winner, previous Platinum Glove Award winner. You know, he's in trouble staying healthy, which I worry about Maturf at Rogers, and his offense is underwhelming. But defensively, that guy's incredible. There's no question. You want defense, Kiermaier is your guy, whether that means – He's a starting center fielder, or he just comes in late innings, or as you said, he's a fourth outfielder. It doesn't matter. His glove is awesome, and that is going to help in terms of run prevention this Toronto team. I think the Jays realize, hey, there's only so much we can do with pitching. We've got to improve our defense, and by deleting Teoscar Hernandez and adding Kevin Kiermaier, you lose significant offense. There's no question. Teoscar is an all-star and a two-time silver slugger, but you're getting premier defense there at Kiermaier, and on a one-year deal, that's not much to ask for. Meantime, Bassett, 34 years of age, three-year contract, $63 million. I think that's, that's pretty much the going rate. Like, if you'd asked me about a week or two ago, I would have said he might get five years, $100 million, which is too much money. But if Tyler Walker is going to get four years in 72, then all of a sudden, yeah, he's an $18 million kind of a year guy. Back is a little bit better, but a little bit older. $21 million makes sense. And three years isn't too bad. Like, you don't feel like that's too much of a stretch for guys turning 34. 34, 35, 36, much like Charlie Morton has done with his career with the Rays and now the Braves you feel like a guy like Bassett will age well. And he's extremely durable. Like, he's one of those guys that I feel confident. He'll make his 32 starts. He'll pitch 170, 180 innings. And when you slot him in as a number three, again, he's an expensive number three, $21 million a year. But you put him after Manoa and Gossman, and I feel a lot better about that top three. Burrito's got that big contract, $137 million. But he's like a number four starter right now. Hopefully he can come back and bounce back and be the star that we really expect him to be. But Bassett... Is a guy who, like I said, he's going to make his starts. 
He'll have a three and a half ERA with the Mets. That means probably about a four ERA with the Jays. But he's going to go, you know, 12 and 10, and he'll make a start. So he'll strike out more than he walks, and away we go. The one concern for Bassett is he's kind of made a living off of shaking off the catcher. So I'm curious how the new pace of play rules may impact him. I saw some studies being done that Bassett, on average, shakes off the catcher at least twice every at-bat, sometimes four times in that bat. So if you've only got 15 or 20 seconds to throw a pitch, Chris Bassett can't use that tactic of shaking off the catcher and just annoying the hitter. So hopefully that does not impact him and his performance. I think he's a good pitcher. It's a good signing for the Jays. It really helps them in an area in which they needed it, which is starting pitching. Uh, what's left out there for free agents? I know that there's been a couple of, of names thrown out there as, you know, big name guys that are still to be signed. I, I think a Kimbrel. We talked a bit about Dansby Swanson's out there. I think Carlos Rodon is probably the best pitcher left on the free agent market. We, we still got some big names to go here over the next couple of weeks, eh? Yeah, those are the three that you mentioned. Rodon right now feels like either Dodgers or Yankees. You know, that Dodgers rotation, they lost Andrew Heaney to the Rangers two-year, $25 million contract. They lost Tyler Anderson on a three-year contract for the Angels. So the Dodgers all of a sudden need a little depth here. Kershaw is only on a one-year contract. Of course, Trevor Bauer is never going to throw another pitch again for the Dodgers. get $40 million a year, but he's on a leave of absence after all that stuff that he was embroiled with. So they need some more pitchers here. So for the Dodgers, you know, I certainly feel like they're in on Rodon, but so are the Yankees. They lose Jamison Tyone, who is their number four, number five starter. He's getting like $18 million a year, which is crazy. Uh, you know, it's more money than I would have expected for a guy like him, but he gets that money there with the Chicago Cubs. So I think Rodon's going to go either one. Now, I would have thought previously, Logan, a guy like Rodon would get $20 million a year. Again, five years, 100 is pretty fair. Maybe more like six years, 120. But once those numbers were inflated with DeGrom and Walker and Tyone, and all of a sudden you go, all right, Rodon wants between 25 and $30 million a year. Now, this is a guy who had an exceptional season. I think he really is one of the top five or ten pitchers in baseball. But he has an injury history. Like, he may get hurt again. And apparently his company, is his crew, is banking for seven years. They want seven years, $210 million, which is just outrageous to me. $30 million a year, which is the high end for Rodon, and seven years is crazy. I mean, I, I'd go six years, 150 if I had to, but I'd love a short-term high AAV. Like, I'd love to go three years, 120. I'll give you $40 million a year but I'm not going to trust you. you're going to stay healthy for the duration of that contract. But John Heyman's saying there's some, some disparity between what the Yankees are offering and what Don wants. So he goes either Dodgers or Yankees. Swanson's the best position player available, the last big-time shortstop. He, again, is very durable. He plays 162. He played every single game. Um, you know, he's going to hit you 22 home runs. He'll drive in 75, 80 runs. He's a good hitter. He's very good defensively. He's just a solid player. Like, Daisy Swanson's that guy – you don't really notice until after the game. You go, that guy's just a good, solid baseball player. And it might be the Twins who offered Correa 10 years, 285 to stay, and he said no. Or it might be the Chicago Cubs. It sounds like Swanson's going to one of those two teams, or maybe even the L.A. Dodgers, of a void now at shortstop. It's Gavin Lux with the shortstop, but Trey Turner gone. So it's, it's those three teams, Twins, Cubs, and Dodgers, who get Swanson. He's going to get like an eight-year, $200 million contract. I think probably the start of free agency was more like a 120, 140, 150 kind of guy. No, Bogers is getting 280, and Swanson's getting north of $200 million, which is wild for a guy who struggled with offense but has gotten better offensively the last couple of seasons. Kimbrell, the last big closer available, as you said, not the same guy he once was, but still effective. Jansen gets two years, $32 million to the Red Sox. I'm sure Kimbrell's hoping for a similar type contract. 
I uh, wanted to chat some football with you because it must be nice being a fan of the only team in the NFL right now uh, that's currently clinched a playoff spot. The Eagles smack around the Giants last week and look excellent doing it. They've got the Bears this week. They're eight-and-a-half-point favorites uh, in Chicago, and it looks like it'll be another day for Jalen Hurts to help rack up the MVP ballots. Unless you're Micah Parsons, uh, Adnan, who... Look, I get that your team's 10-3 and three and you, you probably feel good about yourself if you're the Cowboys. I just don't quite understand questioning a guy in division who's having the kind of season that Jalen Hurts is mid-season if you're Micah Parsons and you know openly questioning whether it's Jalen Hurts actually being an MVP caliber quarterback or if it's the team around him that's getting it done. It just seems like a weird time of year to try to play head games with your division rival. Uh, just a bizarre comp by Micah Parsons and the left tackle, Jordan Mylata, you know, firing backs. I, mean, I don't know who they have their plan this week, but they should worry about that rather than worrying about Jalen Hurts. So a little more of a war of words. They're playing on Christmas Eve, 425, so that game will be even more exciting. You know, I think it was huge. The fact that the Eagles have a one-game edge now, it's, as you said, eight-and-a-half-point favorites against the Bears. They should take care of my brother's Bears and, and win easily. <laughs> and the fact they've got that two-game lead over the Cowboys for the division and the number one spot, the fact that Vikings have lost the Lions, to me, that's massive. Because now you beat the Bears, even if you lose against the Cowboys, which is a tough game in Dallas, Christmas Eve, hey, no problem. You should still have a one-game edge and a little bit of breathing room the Saints you're playing on New Year's Day. So I'm with you. I don't understand what Parsons is doing. I mean, why, why throw more fuel in the fire? You're the underdog right now. You're the team chasing the Eagles. Why would you talk smack to them? Um, and if you're the team in front like Philadelphia, well, don't give them any ammunition, which is what Philadelphia did. Milana kind of took the high road as a few of the other Eagles. Like, all right, that's his opinion. We'll figure it out. But I, I really don't understand Micah Parsons' point. Hurts has 32 total touchdowns, which is tied for the second most with Josh Allen and trails only Patrick Mahomes. His team is 12-1. and one. His completion percentage is almost 70%, which is a huge improvement from a season ago. And uh, he's run back-to-back seasons, first time ever in NFL history, a quarterback with 10-plus rushing touchdowns. So if Hurts isn't in the MVP, he's at least in the top three in the conversation. And I suppose I understand Parsons' point. The system is a good system. Yeah, they've got a good offensive coordinator, and Sirianni's done a good job coaching the team, and they've got a great offensive line led by Jason Kelsey and Mylotta and Lane Johnson and obviously a really good running back. Um, you know, like I, I get to this point, like, hey, they've got a good team. Sure, obviously, every quarterback's going to have great players around them, whether it's A.J. Brown or whoever it is. But to disparage Hurts and say he's not a big part of their success, I don't understand that thinking. Right now, it's awfully fun to watch my Eagles. A 12-1 team destined for greatness, it feels like. Yeah, it's it's been a ton of fun to watch them. It's been a ton of fun to own a couple of Eagles in fantasy football this year as well. And, yeah, it's just I, – I guess if you're you're trying to, to big dog him heading into that game on Christmas Eve – I, I guess, but I mean, he's got like, what, two interceptions on the year? He's going to rush for 1,000 yards and throw for over 4,000 by the time it's all said and done. Uh, that's not exactly the guy I would be trash-talking, but hey, I'm not Micah Parsons, and uh, I'm not on the Dallas Cowboys. We'll see how that works out in a couple weeks for them. As for tonight, Thursday Night Football, big one between the San Francisco 49ers and the Seattle Seahawks, and I've said this to a couple people, Verk, how nice must it be to be Pete Carroll and the Seahawks right now. You're playing with house money. If you make the playoffs, you weren't supposed to be there anyways, and you have a chance at you know maybe taking down the 49ers for this division. We don't know what Brock Purdy really looks like over an extended period of time, and the Denver Broncos are handing you a top five, maybe top three draft pick in next year's draft. It's 
pretty crazy to me how well that's worked out. Like, I did not think that contract would work out like that. But, um, you know, that happens sometimes, right? Like, if you're the Seahawks, say, hey, we're rebuilding, we're giving up. Not giving up, we're just going to retooling on the fly. And Russell Wilson's gone, Geno Smith's our guy. But that trade's worked out beautifully. I mean, the Seahawks, when do they have a Mr. B? Like, they're a 7-16, and 16, but I did not expect they'd be above 500. I did not think they'd be fighting for a playoff spot. The 49ers have won six straight games. You know, they're, they're going to win the division. Brock Purdy, formerly Mr. Irrelevant, now very relevant as he takes over for Jimmy G. But I'm with you, man. If you're Pete Carroll, I mean, that, that is great coaching by Pete Carroll because normally the coach of the year goes to the team where the guy isn't expected to be very good, and they're better than anticipated. And that's what Seattle has been. Again, I heard people saying three, four, five-win team. That's not going to be the case. It might be a 10-win team. They might be going to the playoffs. So good Thursday night football game tonight. Again, 49ers probably win. They've got a great defense. And like I said, Purdy's come in really strong. But I'm sure for Seattle, man, that's a fun story there out in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, and I imagine you've uh, probably got your, uh, your vote in already for the Golden Globes. Best picture, uh, drama, Top Gun Maverick, Tom Cruise. Uh, going to crush it as always. <laughs> I'm sure you can't wait for that one coming up in January. Yeah. Interesting uh, cast there of nominees for the Golden Globes, too. As enraged as I was to Top Gun Maverick nominated, I was thrilled Cruz was not nominated for Best Actor, which, as you know, the Golden Globes nominated everybody. They've got two acting categories for actors. Those who aren't aware, the actual Oscars is only five nominees. The Golden Globes goes five nominees, Best Actor in a Comedy or Musical, and Best Actor in a Drama Series. So thank God Cruz was not one of the ten nominees there, although he is a producer of the movie, so he does get uh, you know, to bask in the joy of that nomination. Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, which is just a wild and crazy movie. I'm glad that movie has been recognized and doing well. I just saw Babylon, which is out in theaters in a week. I had the screeners sent to me. It is debauchery. It is wild. It is ambitious. Uh, it's all over the place. It's a little bit ridiculous, but I found it very entertaining. It's like the Wolf of Wall Street set in the 1920s. You know, It's about the movie industry set 100 years ago. Two big-time stars, Margot Robbie and Brad Pitt. That's up for Best Picture. Both those actors got nominated, along with Diego Calva for Best Actor, Damien Chazelle for Best Director. The favorite ones I knew would do well, Spielberg's film. It's a very good movie. I enjoyed it quite a bit. But the one that I love most of all is The Banshees of Inner Sharon, and that did great. It's up for Picture, Director, Screenplay. Uh, Colin Farrell's up for Actor. I think Barry Coffin is up for Supporting Actor. And Karen Gondon's for Supporting Actors. So The Banshees of Inner Sharon, so far my favorite film of the year, and I love the fact that Golden Globes gave it a lot of love. I think that the uh, the Banshees. I think Brendan Gleeson might also be up for Best Supporting Actor, and I think they got two in that one. You're right. Gleeson is the one that I, when I saw the film, I said he's the no doubt nominee. And I saw some critics groups; they were nominating Barry Coffin. I don't how to pronounce that right, K E O G H A N. But I think you're right. It's probably Barry and Gleeson. I, I'm watching the film. I, I walked out there and said, "The Barrels gonna get nominated, so is Gleeson." I've been pleasantly surprised. Barry Kay and Kerry Condon have also been getting a lot of Oscar and uh, award love, which is great. Yeah, it'll be interesting. We're getting closer to that season, closer to those conversations, which unfortunately means uh, more Tom Cruise conversation, but less in the important categories. The movie itself, yeah, we, I don't think it's going to win anything, but as long as Tom doesn't win anything, we know we'll keep uh, our pal Adnan happy. Uh, thanks for doing this, man. Looking forward to keeping these chats going. we got two hours of uh, Sportsnet Today coming up in the next couple of weeks, so glad to have you along for the ride, Adnan. Take care, pal. I love it, Logan. Love the fact you're getting more love and more stretch. It shows the people of Calgary have great taste. Take Keep it rocking, buddy. Take care, pal. Talk to you soon.
Take care. At Denver, MLB Network, NHL Network, and the Cinephile Podcast. Joins us every Thursday for a chat here on Sportsnet today and uh, does so down the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline. Brought to you by Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar. You can dine in, pick up, or have your game day special delivered. Find out why Atlas Pizza is a 14-time Consumer Choice Award winner. 6060 Memorial Drive Northeast, or you can call them at 403-248-3344. That's going to do it. Two hours in the books. You can get us wherever you get your podcasts, Google, Amazon, Spotify, etc., uh, or hit us up at sportsnet.ca slash 960. Thank you to all of our guests today. Thank you to you for listening. Shout out to Taylor and Cam on the other side for killing it as usual. We'll be back tomorrow for a Friday edition on a game day against the St. Louis Blues. we got to get out of here. Hockey Central 960 with the one and only, the wonderful Haley Salvian is coming up next. Keep it locked here on Sportsnet 960, The Fan.